You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It is Sunday, the 23rd of October, and the time now is 10.07. Welcome to the Weekend World Show with Asan Amdi and Waleed Ahmed, my co-host, listening to Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile and online, 24 hours a day. Broadcasting live from the Bath of Fathul Mosque in Morden. The Weekend World Show is a current affairs show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective. Promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and enlightenment. The message of Islam for the West. Join us and share your views or stories by phoning 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views of the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Blith, uh, a wet morning. Um, we're into winter now, I presume. Uh, and uh, the month has been quite wet, I believe. It has been, and it's decidedly uh, wintry weather that is uh, where we're in. Although winter hasn't, uh, uh, we haven't seen the onset of winter just yet. But Not at uh, all. Uh, uh, I've, I've been into sunny climates. I've been yes. sunning it up in Pakistan, which mm-hmm. has been always a an experience. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of floods there. Isn't it? Sorry, a lot, of, a lot of rain and floods there as well. Uh, there? We missed those floods oh, actually. Okay. Yes, uh, mm. I was in the Punjab area. Right. Uh, so we were fine there, but uh, the Pakistan, uh, the nation has suffered. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British government had sent its uh, representative, Lord Tariq Ahmed, oh, yeah. to help them with some funds there as well, mm-hmm. uh, further ten million on top of the fifteen million that was given to them. Mm-hmm. So that is well received. Uh, but uh, helping others is always uh, uh, something that all faiths aspire to and uh, wish to do. And uh, Islam certainly and the, and the Muslim community also are very forefront in that aspect. Right. Yeah, uh, the American journalist believe, uh, yeah. and novelist Ernest, Ernest Hemingway, very famous, wrote the first panacea for a mismanagement nation is inflation. The second is war. Both bring temporary prosperity, both bring permanent ruin, but both are the refuge of political and economic opportunities. Mm. Quite appropriate in the current climate. I've just been to come from Pakistan. The political situation there is very similar mm. to that here. And I, I, the, the news broke of what's happening in Britain, and uh, it's quite an eye-opener. Even, even a nation like Pakistan was laughing at what's happening really? <laughs> in Britain. Absolutely, mm. yeah. Mm. Uh, and he's wrote this decades ago. So what is happening? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think the last bit about the, uh, this being uh, a refuge of political and economic opportunities is, I think, is very um, true, hmm. uh, one would say, uh, for what is happening uh, in the UK 
and uh, uh, this MP, I think his name was Walker, I can't remember his first name, uh, mm-hmm. brought that into sharp focus when he said that uh, the MPs were too keen on making sure that they ticked the right box when uh, supporting anyone. Uh, in order to ensure that they get a red box and a ministerial position. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, he was bemoaning that fact that that is uh, what was the state of uh, the behavior of his of, uh, people in his own party. Um, so it is, it is very sad. It's a sad indictment of where we are. Uh, I mean, uh, that, that has definitely been the case yeah. in, in the Conservative Party's yeah. elections that we've seen. People were not giving support to an MP because of their commitment or their uh, principles, mm. but because of securing a position yeah. in the cabinet. And yeah. and we've seen it again. Oh yes, people I mean, like Pretty Patel shouting out, you know, we're, we're yeah. here to support Boris Johnson. Yeah. This is all maneuvers to get a place in yeah. the cabinet. Nothing to do with who they like or who their yeah. support is for. And we could all see, you and I could see the abilities that uh, our former Prime Minister had. Absolutely. And we were quite certain uh, that uh, she would be out of her depth. Yeah. And I'm sure the uh, Conservative MPs also did, but they, uh, uh, many of them, uh, it is claimed, uh, that's all we can say, it is claimed that they they supported her in order because she, uh, they found her to be the front runner and they thought that that is where they could uh, personally get ahead if uh, that's where they put their support. Or, but then it ruined the country, didn't or, it? Or, or possibly even that this, that the, her downfall would come quickly ah. and, and the words of Boris Johnson, hasta la vista, <laughs> would, would come to fruition very quickly. Uh, but let's see. Uh, lost uh, I, I don't know whether whether they are that far thinking. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 I think that you're giving. If they can them elect someone like that as as, as your yeah, prime minister, uh, I think you're giving them too much credit. Too much credit. Uh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, look, we'll be discussing some of this and key stories yeah. of the week. Not guessing what the main story has been yeah. with turmoil and turbulence still running through the Tory party with the introduction of Jeremy Hunt being uh, been enough to stabilise the government uh, and with the prospect of Boris coming back after mm. the exit of Liz Truss. Are the Conservatives asking for more trouble? Mm. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm speechless on mm. that, really. Uh, joining us to discuss this and some of the other stories will be the long-standing Conservative supporter and member parliament, a uh, member, sorry, Philip Ghent and Lib Dem aspirant Asif Ashraf. Yeah. Uh, this will be followed by the Faith in Focus with the continued look into the life of the Holy Prophet and the closing events of his life. Uh, what have we got after the 11 o'clock news? Well, we'll be exploring the issue of protests and protesting. Uh, last week, Just Stop Oil campaigners poured cans of soup at Masterpiece uh, by Vincent van Gogh in the National Gar- uh, Gallery. Other stunts have included protesters gluing themselves on roads of vegans pouring milk all over supermarket stalls. Uh, do these people have a right to do so? And what does Islam say about such protests? Uh, we'll be joined by uh, Just Stop Oil uh, spokesman Oliver Clegg and discussing this with uh, Mr. Khalil Yusuf. Uh, we will uh, also be taking the Islamic standpoint on these uh, issues from Imam Mansur Clark. Indeed. And what else have we got on the show? 
well, uh, there was a fundraising that uh, Majlis Khudam in India, that's the youth wing of the Amdi Muslim community, undertook for a church known as after its roof uh, required extensive repairs. Uh, we shall be talking to Reverend Neil Fehlam, uh, Neil Fehlam, that is, about this, and a representative of the Amdi Muslim Youth Association who helped organize the fundraising event. Indeed, a good cause, helping others, uh, part yeah. of what Islam teaches us. Uh, any sports, I wonder? <laughs> any well, cricket on? Any cricket yeah. on? <laughs> well, no, Premiership first. I mean, what? The, the main, the main, the main sport. Uh, so we've been talking about uh, the Premiership and what's been happening in mm-hmm. uh, recent uh, days, and the progress of uh, yes, uh, the T20 Cricket World Cup. Uh, big match today, Pakistan and India taking place. So we'll have a peek of that. What's uh, going on there? Yeah, unfortunately, Pakistan seem to be struggling there a little bit, uh, and India seems to have the upper hand. Uh, oh. So let's yes, absolutely. Okay. No, so no prospect of a fight back. Uh, we don't know that. Oh. Cricket is cricket, and this T mm. Twenty cricket. But this will have uh, uh, look into all of that. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, anyone eager to share and share their points, uh, share their views, can do so by phoning oh two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile, or live stream on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is the Weekend World Show with Asan MD and Waleed Ahmed. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Right, Waleed, let's move on to our first segment of the show, which is the News Review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views, and reviews. Uh, right, I think joining us this morning, we leave is Philip Ghent, uh, a Lib Dem aspirant, uh, Asif Ashafa, hopefully. I don't know if both are ready. But uh, the first item on the news is fighter, not a quitter. These are the famous words mm. of uh, Liz Trances. Was it the only PM question she did? No, no, she did more than one. Okay. Um, but uh, yes, a day after she delivered a robust performance at Prime uh, PMQs, claiming she was a fighter and not a quitter, the Prime Minister performed a U-turn the very next day, announcing that she was indeed quitting. Uh, this ultimate of U-turns came after a flurry of U-turns that came to characterise Liz Truss's premiership, leading her to state, and I quote, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. And uh, many uh, members of the public were quite dismayed as to what had just transpired uh, over her period of office. Mm. Um, joining us is, uh, I hope it is, uh, Philip Gent. Philip, salam alaikum. Good morning. Good morning. And is Asif with us as well? No, just Philip. It is. Philip, uh, fighter, not a quitter. Words she had to eat very quickly. I've just returned from Pakistan and uh, even the Pakistanis were laughing at what's happening in Britain. Is the Tory party just there for a joke? Just to clarify, I'm, no, I'm, I'm talking on behalf of... Uh, the Conservative Party. I think I think you mentioned um, the Lib Dem Party, but just in yes. in relation in relation to um, the UK being a, you know a laughing stock, it it has turned into a, a bit of a soap opera, hasn't it? Mm. I think we're all we're all agreed, to say the least agree, <laughs> agreed with that. It it it's um, you know the, the sooner we write the ship and um, and focus on on the national issues and and the people's priorities. Um, I think the better it, it has become a laughing stock, and mm. uh, quite rightly so. You know, yeah. uh, matters ha- have been uh, handled in a inappropriate way. Uh, although there were good intentions, obviously behind behind it, 
uh, it has come across as. Uh, what, what, very I mean, what, what is, is that questionable? Is it? Well, it was all done with good intent. I mean, uh, the question has to be asked: What went wrong? And could someone as incompetent as this trust be elected? Um, I can't see where it was done with good intent comes into it. Tell you the truth. Right. So, so, so the, the uh, when it comes to the intention of um, cutting taxes, um, okay, and the mm-hmm. supply and the supply and the supply side reforms, some of which have been announced, and some which have not yet had not been announced, mm. I think made directionally absolute sense. Um, what, what didn't make sense was sort of trying to introduce all of the tax cutting agenda on day one that's simply simply not possible given um, the, the public expenditure that we've got I mean that's got to be looked at and we've got to grow the economy as well before we can we can really you know start cutting taxes so mm. it's really the pace and timing I uh, was was a miss although directionally you know, I I was in agreement with with what she intended to do, uh, but you you can't you can't do it all on day one. Well, on the day it was announced, the whole market fell apart, and and Britain's uh, place in the world economy was was being laughed at. Uh, did is the whole of the cabinet to blame? Because surely they would have looked at this and they agreed to it. Well, my understanding is that um, the cabinet were not consulted on uh, what the Chancellor was, was going to say on the day of the mini-budget. Unfortunately, mm. it was really between uh, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. Uh, but they but did go and defend it, didn't they? The rest of the Cabinet did vociferously uh, defend, defend the, whole, the, the, you know, the mini-budget uh, based on collective responsibility. Uh, they they, they they would have done that if they if they were not comfortable doing that, or if they did not do that, then they would, they would then have to resign from cabinet. So that that that's part of being a member of cabinet and 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 that collective responsibility. Mm. Um, but up front, um, the decision was made between the prime minister and. Um, and the chance okay. Well, let's let's have a look at the view of uh, Asif Ashraf. He's a Lib Dem aspirant. Uh, Asif, assalamualaikum. Thank you for yeah. No, no. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you must be um, laughing to the ballot box at the moment, won't you? Actually, no. I, I think it's, the situation is actually quite depressing and sad because you always feel as though you want your nation to be uh, successful. And you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to succeed based upon an incompetence of, of, a, of a government. And I think that's my ultimate initial feeling of the situation. Of course, a general election would be great to have, um, but it wouldn't be is unlikely to happen. But um, I don't think anybody's laughing. They're actually feeling quite um, upset by the whole situation and, and a mixture of emotions because from one day to the other, you feel you can feel angry and annoyed by the incompetence. You can be upset by the uh, level of impact it's having on people's lives. Um, you know the, the the whole situation is you couldn't you couldn't write you couldn't write this stuff. It's actually real life is stranger than fiction, and it, it seems at the moment. So 
Um, I would say we, we're certainly not laughing to the ballot box at the moment. So um, for one reason, it's unlikely to happen. And another reason, it's very upsetting to see our nation go through this, this trauma. Uh, Asif, are you worried that uh, while the nation is going through this trauma and uh, opinions are shifting, they're shifting towards uh, vote, wanting to vote for Labour uh, as opposed to wanting to vote for the Lib, Lib Dems. In fact, the Lib Dem uh, position has also deteriorated during this crisis. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think Lib Dems have always been uh, somewhere where people have found a home from one of the other two leading parties, and, and that's been the case, you know, for some time. Um, I think our polling has dropped around three percent from roughly around twelve percent in initial peaks in recent months to around sort of nine percent at the moment. But similarly, the you know the real grab of voters has been from Labour grabbing into the Conservative Party, and obviously since this um, situation with Liz uh, Truss's budget, um, that gulf has increased dramatically, um, and it's obviously been driven by this idea that um, people will want to back uh, an next government But I think what will happen is ultimately there will be a case where people will realise that you know there is a, a blue wall situation where um, there will be you know, liberals fighting conservatives and will be the primary uh, opposition to uh, conservatives in those areas. So I think in reality, once things settle down a little bit and we do have a situation where we're going into an election, people will support you know, liberal Democrats and, and see some of their policies come into action. So I don't see it as a big issue at this moment in time. I think it's more um, a reflection of people's wanting to send a strong message to, to, the, to the government that they're certainly not happy with what, what's going on. And, you know, Labour is a good way of reflecting that. Labour hasn't changed in terms of its capabilities or its resourcing in any way, shape or form. They're the same people that were there um, you know, 18 months ago. So um, nothing's really changed on their side. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think, I think some of those, some of their issues will come out to the fore. Uh, are, as it goes. Are, are, are the Lib Dems trembling in the feet because Boris is now coming back and uh, you'll have no chance of getting elected because uh, he's popular with the people, isn't he? I think he's only popular with a certain type of people and you know, a certain demographic of people. I don't believe he's going to be um, very popular. Um, if you look at the local elections in May, a lot of campaigning by the Lib Dems was around this idea of how uh, Boris Johnson was a reliability on our nation, and a lot of Conservative voters switched um, to to the Liberal Democrats because of Boris's performance. I don't think that's going to change. I think you know, Boris will be Boris uh, when he comes back again. The only reason why he's popular is because he will save the seats of those people who are in the Red Wall areas, as they say, in the north, who desperately need to, to find some solution to keep their seats. Mm. And there will be a demographic Conservative voter who will support him because he kind of re reflects their uh, aspirations more than the, than the aspirations of the majority of the people in the UK. Well, let's see what Philip thinks. Philip, uh, Boris coming back again uh, after the debacle that we had with him uh, and then the debacle with Liz Truss. Are the Conservatives ready to have another debacle and having Johnson back in uh, power? No, what, 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 what we're finding now, and I've been quite disappointed uh, internally on this as well, is that we cannot have uh, somebody back in the party who is going to be sitting in front of the Privileges Committee, 
uh, and could be suspended from Parliament for 10 days, potentially, if he's found to have uh, misled, misled Parliament. There is no other walk of life where <laughs> you would put somebody in a position of responsibility if they had anything like that hanging over them, potential misconduct, um, serious misconduct charge. So um, I, I don't. I personally don't think that he will come back as Prime Minister. I know that in the press uh, a lot is being talked about Boris Johnson, but um, there's a firm, firm resolve within the party that, um, you know, Rishi Sunak uh, should be the Prime Minister, I think there's no sensible opinion mm-hmm. that he should be the, the, the Prime Minister, the next Prime Minister. Uh, Boris Johnson is very popular uh, among the membership and generally, but I think principles are principles and values are values. And, yeah, Miss Trust was popular, wasn't she, as well, and got elected, and look where we are. Anyway, let's, uh, I know we could carry on with this discussion, but let's move on to other stories. Uh, more strikes on the horizon, Walid. What's this story about? Well, uh, whoever is elected as a new Prime Minister, he or she will have to deal with continued civil unrest, uh, with strikes from all kinds of sectors being planned, including the RMT. Uh, Silvia Pellegrino of the uh, City Monitor writes, after striking for parts of the summer and October, the RMT Rail Union has announced that network rail strikes are happening again on Thursday the 3rd, Saturday the 5th, and Monday the 7th of November 2022. And according to the RMT, the strike is due to uh, network rail bosses reneging on their commitment to raise the staff pay and trying to return to a previously rejected deal. RMT boss Mick Lynch said via press release that on the one hand, uh, network rail management were telling our negotiators that they were prepared to do a deal while planning to torpedo negotiations by imposing unacceptable changes to our members' terms and conditions. Our members are livid with these duplicitous tactics and they will now respond in kind with sustained strike action. Hmm. Asif, uh, the Lib Dems, they're supporting the strikes, um, unlike uh, the Labour MPs who did not go on the front line. Are Lib Dems going to support them? I think the idea of the terminology being used about supporting strikes, I think the idea is that the Lib Dems can be sympathetic to the issues of strike, but in reality, obviously, that any political party is not in the current one is not going to be advocating supporting strikes. It's going to be able to be sympathetic to how you actually deal with the situation. I think what what we're finding here at the moment is this government is looking at this in a more antagonistic way rather than in a kind of cooperative way of actually helping to resolve these issues. Mm-hmm. And that antagonism is going to spark more strikes going down the line as well. And I think they've their match with people like Mick Lynch as well, because they actually project themselves quite positively in the optics that they have in front of the camera, far better than some of the Conservative MPs that go up against them. Indeed. Uh, Philip, uh, in that regard, Mick Lynch is sweeping the floor as far as public opinion is concerned and all the support from the public seems to be for the strike, despite the fact that is the people who are who are suffering from this apart from not getting there. Have the Conservatives lost the plot here or are they trying to follow what uh, Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, did and thinking that that error still exists? Because I think that was the past right. history. Yeah. Um, personally, um, and, and I think the Conservative Party uh, 
does reflect what I personally think. I think action should should be curtailed. I think people should have personal responsibility and think more about their actions. And if if for the sake of you know twenty thousand people, you know two three million people are being disturbed, uh, the economy is suffering. I think that's not a good that's not a good approach to, to negotiation. Secondly, uh, a lot of the people that are being disturbed work in the private sector and they're not having these pay increases that are being negotiated in the public sector. And and, and, and so they're facing a double whammy, one of the disturbance and two, that then nobody's negotiating on their behalf for pay increases. Well, surely the so employers, the, it's the job of the employees because it's a private industry. It's got nothing to do with, with the, uh, the funds from the public or the taxes that we pay because they work in the private sector. That's right. So they, they, so they, their right, beef is with my, their employers. Philip, are you that, suggesting that, that, that these that, um, private individuals unionise as well? Is that what you suggest would have to be the best option for them? No, I, I believe in reducing friction in markets. And in relation to uh, public sector, we, we know that it is the free market that drives efficient practices. Uh, workers, consumers need to be protected. However, uh, not at the expense of progress and introducing technology and introducing more efficient processes that uh, utilize the nation's resources in a better way. And, and, and that is the struggle that we're having at the moment in relation to, for example, uh, the, the railway workers. So I, was all, I would always stand with those who are looking to progress and uh, work for the betterment uh, of the nation and the utilization of the nation's resources. I think that has to be a good thing. It has to be a good thing. It's uh, creating disturbance in society uh, is not a, it's not a, not a, not a way of going, going about, you know, such, such a matter. So what, uh, Asif, what do you say to that? I think the smokescreen is there in terms of this whole idea of um, using technology to improve um, the, the sort of general sort of um, systems and, and, and technologies to improve efficiency, etc. I mean, I think everyone has been always been supportive of that. I think the issue of these strikes is that the fundamental aspect of it all is, is the impact of the cost of living. And those individuals are a reflection of people's angst at this moment in time. That's why the idea is, is that there is a need to be sympathetic to these actions and for that to be listened to. And that's where the empathy and the responsibility of government has to come into play. Not to actually vilify necessarily spray action, but to actually generally work with those individuals to actually get to a solution. And the idea of, of sort of resisting that is, is that, I mean, we had, you've got to also understand there's also like nurses have wanted to strike as well. And their requests for pay increases have been rejected, but, you know, they're behaving in a manner that is, you know, trying to hold back on, on actually striking. But they are likely that they will be pushed to strike as well. And that is an example of where this government over the last 10 years has literally poo-pooed their request for um, better pay, better working conditions, etc. That's really where, where you, know, you see you see a public sector industry restraining themselves from striking, and yet they're not paid any attention to. So that's an example where um, this government does need to actually sort of prick up their ears and start listening to, to people and paying attention to them and 
been actively involved in resolving the potential strikes that can come along down the line. But obviously, their very their biggest challenge at the moment, they have inflation to curb, and that's a, that's a hard challenge to work in. We'll always struggle to do that when you are having to do with pay increases as well. So a big challenge for them. I appreciate that. But they do still need to pay attention to public sector workers' needs. Yeah, uh, Philip, can I come back on that? Yes, can, can I, I yeah. just say something, Philip, before that? Yeah. There's breaking news that uh, Rishi Sunak has announced his uh, candidacy for uh, for uh, seeking uh, the, uh, the top job. Uh, he hadn't done right. that before. He's got 129 votes. I wanted to ask you before you respond to Asif, um, the trust yep. government was was going to introduce legislation that made that would have made strikes more difficult, even impossible. Uh, it, would that be the right approach to take? I think where where large large amounts of people are being disturbed and it's adversely impacting the nation, I think that makes sense. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'd be 100% behind that. Uh, just going back on Asif's point, if I may respectfully, um, our public finances are—it's clear for everybody to see. You know, um, they're, they're, we're suffering. Uh, you know, we continuously run a current account deficit where we collect less taxes than what our government. Than, than what the government, well, we collect le- less taxes than what we are required to spend. So we run a current account deficit. The big issue we have uh, in the UK is our national debt. Now, the markets are spooked because they can't see a way the UK can pay down its national debt. So we cannot run a current account deficit. So if we were to give the public sector these pay rises, we would only increase our current account deficit and our, no. and our pound and our interest rates and our inflation would all be adversely impacted. Let's get let's get Asif's view um, on that. I would look, that, look, let's be clear on this one. You know, let me give you an example of something that's out there. When you look at something like the, the happiest nation in the world, I think three of the top five are Scandinavian countries. Of those those uh, Scandinavian countries they have a higher tax rate on those individuals so that they support their public sector and, and services. I may be sounding a little more like a labor individual, but you know, in the Lib Dems, it's about having, you know, finding solutions to, to problems. And we have to be honest in San Francisco, we have to raise taxes. It's, it's politically um, suicide to be able to, to say that, but you're going to have to raise taxes. And you, you know, this government has not been honest with people to be able to say, you know, we're going to have to raise taxes. Be honest with people, that is a solution to, to the problem. If you're spending taxes. more, then you need to raise more. Last word with uh, Philip. Thank you. Ta- taxes are at their highest level for 70 years. There comes a point when we cannot tax our way out of the problem. Um, Go on, Asif, a quick one, and then we'll close okay. the, the well, discussion. Well, the, the, the argument here is, is that if you've had... Uh, economies that have a high tax rate and provide good public services, you know, there's a good chance those people will be happy and, and prosperous. And we have that example already in um, in Scandinavian countries. That's an example and approach to, to look at doing. If we all carry that burden with the taxation, there's a good chance we will come through this difficult situation. The, 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 the big thing here, I guess, is that this government isn't prepared to say they're going to raise taxes. And they should be saying that 
be honest with the people. This is what you're going to have to do to get out of the, the, the mud. You can't borrow. You can't uh, you can't crush the public uh, sector as it stands at the moment in terms of the funding it needs. You're just going to make matters worse. You may even drive more strike factors into place. So be honest with people. Raising taxes may well be the only solution we, we have for this problem. Gentlemen, uh, we could carry on and uh, we'll end with the uh, with the agreement that we don't we don't all agree. But thank you so much for an engaging Thanks. discussion. And uh, let's pray for the betterment of our country, that the best leaders are chosen uh, and those who will uh, have the people's interest at heart. Right, Walid, uh, mm -hmm. we're going to move on to our next segment of the show, which is the Faith in Focus. We've been discussing the life of the Holy Prophet and we're coming towards the close. Uh, we ended last time with the cliffhanger, with, with the controversial event a few miles out of Mecca, if you remember. Yeah. So what was this event and what was this controversy? Well, it's the incident of Ghadir Khum, uh, and literally means Pond of Khum. Uh, is significant because it's something that has gained controversy among the Shia and the Sunni. And the event took place on the 14th of Zulhaj, the day after the Holy Prophet left Makkah at a place called Khum. Now the background is that Hazrat Ali, uh, during the course of the preparations for the this Hajj that took place uh, in which the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, participated, was uh, in Yemen. And uh, he was traveling back. Uh, with him were some uh, hundred camels, which the Holy Prophet had asked for. And all of his zakat and sadhgah raised from the Yemenis. And in his eagerness to meet up with the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, when he reached the outskirts of, the of Makkah, Hazrat Ali left uh, another person in charge of the goods, while he himself uh, sped off uh, to meet the Holy Prophet uh, early. Now, the person he left in charge uh, started to distribute those goods, including clothes, to the entire entourage. So when uh, this group uh, that was a com was uh, that Hazrat Ali was leading caught up with Hazrat Ali in Makkah, Hazrat Ali was aghast at what this person had done. He was extremely uh, unhappy that the goods meant for the treasury and zakat and sadhka had been distributed among themselves, and he ordered for the return which, as you'd expect, was not well received. If you've just been given expensive things one minute and a little while later, you're not uh, uh, going to, uh, uh, you know, you're not going to be too happy. Uh, and uh, you may well start grumbling and moaning and even having uh, go at the individual, Ali in this case, for making you return those goods that you've just been received. And the best way to vent your anger is to lodge a complaint with the Holy Prophet. So after a lot of this grumbling, uh, this exactly was what took place. Uh, people complained to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And in response to that, uh, the Holy Prophet gave an address, the Sermon of Ghadir Khum, it is known as. Known as. And uh, he said things like, whoever is the Mawla of Ali, I am the Mawla of Ali, and Ali is to me like Harun and Musa were. So he uh, uses the sermon to praise Ali a lot in a very strong and forthright manner in order to uh, tell and get the message across to those who were criticizing Ali that they are in the wrong and they should not do, do so. Hazrat Ali is someone who is very dear to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Also words of um, uh, this uh, sermon are recorded as, such as of whomever I am a master, Ali is his master, and whomsoever I am a guardian, Ali is his guardian. Um, I befriend the friend of Ali, 
and be the be the enemy of Israel. These are you know these are phrases that are taken mm. from that particular um, sermon. Now, here the context is important. to Remember, he's rebuking those who have started distributing what they had no right to do so, and he's siding with the early while remonstrating his his critics. He's extolling the virtues of Azali Ali and also says, I leave, I leave behind you two things. As the first of them, hold on to it. It is the book of Allah. And as for the second, fear Allah with regard to my family. The meaning being, give, give them due respect. Do not ignore or trivialize the likes of Azali. Yes, and have the Shias taken this to be the mark that... Uh, uh, has, has preference over others? How have the Shias taken yes. this? No, no, this uh, <coughs> is an important question, good question. Um, the Shias say that this address <coughs> showed that the Holy Prophet was declaring who his successor would be. They also claim that this is the uh, occasion when the verse was revealed where Allah says, um, and I, I quote the translation, uh, this day I have perfected your religion for you and completed my favor upon you and have chosen for you Islam as your religion. It occurs in chapter 5, verse 4 of the Holy Quran. Again, this is not the case because it is well documented that during the time of Hazrat Umar, uh, a Jew came to, the, to Hazrat Umar and said that there is a verse in the Holy Quran which if it had been revealed to them, in other words to the Jews, it would call, it be a cause of great celebration. And he uh, asked uh, the Jewish person as to which verse he was referring to. And the Jew said, it is this one, you know, this day I perfected mm. religion. And to which Hazrat Umar replied, I remember exactly when that verse was revealed. It was revealed on the plains of Arafat during Hajj. He's not saying after Hajj, he's saying on the plains of mm. Arafat during Hajj. He's not saying after Hajj at, uh, at the, the, uh, the uh, uh, referring to the Ghadir Khum uh, sermon. He's referring to during the Hajj. Now, Hazrat Umar remembered this particularly because this verse, he says, made him weep. And uh, I looked at various biographies, and Ibn Khatir says that when Hazrat Umar uh, heard this uh, verse, he started crying. And uh, he was asked as to why he was so distraught. And Hazrat Umar replied, every perfection spells an end. And the point being made that now the message had been perfected, it meant the end of the life of the Holy Prophet was near. He understood that. So it was a deeper me meaning in this verse that was making Hazrat Umar sad. And it is that which uh, made sure that this particular verse and where it was revealed and when was etched in his memory. And because the verse had made such a strong impact on him, Hazrat Umar remembered exactly when and where it was revealed. On the plains of Arafat during the Hajj, not at Hadir Khum after the Hajj. The Shias say that it was Khum, and they celebrate the Eid Khadir Khum on the 18th of Zulhaj every year, claiming that this was the day when the successorship was announced, which completed the religion of Islam. And they say his address was made when all the big gathering of the Muslims who had gone to Hajj, uh, estimated we were 100,000, was together, which again is disputed. This is because after the Hajj was over, the gathering had dispersed and only those traveling in the direction of Medina or en route uh, before the path separated were present at the, uh, the Ghazir home. In fact, the argument that almost all the 100,000 or so pilgrims were there goes against them. 
And why is that? Well, because the Holy Prophet passed away literally a few months later, um, four, I think four to seven months later. And when the question of the succession was raised, not a single companion mentioned this sermon as one that accorded the successorship to Hazrat Ali. Not one mentioned this sermon at all, let alone it's in, in, its, in this context. And neither, very important, did Hazrat Ali, neither did he complain afterwards that the right of succession was there. Not that of Hazrat Bukhar uh, or uh, anyone else. Hazrat Ali, who was known for his valor and standing up to any foe, no matter how formidable, uh, did not raise a finger to assert his so-called right given by the Holy Prophet. It runs against the character of, the Holy, uh, of Hazrat Ali to have been quiet and reticent had succession, succession indeed been given to him. Had the Holy Prophet truly announced him to be his successor, Agadir Khum, he would have made sure it was fulfilled. He would have acted in exactly the same way as Hazrat Abu Bakr did when he was asked to stop the army of Osama to leave Medina when there was danger from the surrounding tribes threatening to attack the city. At that time, the great Hazrat Abu Bakr said that the army was commissioned by the Holy Prophet to go and he would not overrule an instruction of the Holy Prophet. This was the standard of loyalty and love that Hazrat Abu Bakr had for the Holy Prophet. Hazrat Ali was of the same mold. He would never have cowed down on the issue of successorship had he understood that the Holy Prophet had bestowed it on him. The fact is that he did not, and Hazrat Ali understood it as such. And the other important point is that there were other senior companions who would die to fulfill the wishes of the Holy Prophet but not a single one piped up to express their support for this wish. The reason is that there was no such wish expressed by the Holy Prophet. And what is also significant is that early historians do not give this event any importance, this event of Ghadir Khum. Some do not even mention this. Uh, I've looked at biographies, uh, Tabari's biography, Ibn Sham, Ibn Saad, they don't mention it. If they had thought it was a statement of succession, there is no way they would have admitted it. And finally, on this point, if praising Ali like uh, the Holy Prophet did at uh, Hum is a qualification for successorship, then he is also reported to have he praised on other companions when the Holy Prophet reached Medina after the Hajj. He said, O oh people, Abu Bakr has never failed me, so you should respect his standing. O oh people, I am happy with Abu Bakr. I am happy with Umar, with Usman, with Ali, Tala, Zubair, Abdul Rahman bin Awf and the earliest of the muhajir. Muhajirs are the emigrants to Medina. Be mindful of their high stature. O people, do not pain me concerning my companions and family, lest Allah take you to task. So there were other companions as well that the Holy, uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, praised. doesn't mean that he was offering them or was claiming them to have the successorship after he passed away. It would be wrong to single out just one person out of that group mm. of people whom the Holy Prophet praised. Mm. I remember uh, the fourth caliph of the Amdiya Muslim community, Azamizat Ayr Ahmed, uh, in a question and answer session uh, asked by a Shia, and the Holy Prophet, the Prophet, said that uh, if successorship was to go to Ali and not the others, then why is it that Hazrat Ali gave bad to Hazrat Abu Bakr, mm. then he gave bad to Hazrat Umar, mm. then he gave bad to Hazrat Usman? So if he was willing to give bad to them, mm. then why not you? Yeah. So. 
No, very, very, very important <laughs> point. Yes, Indeed. very important. Yes. Uh, you said a few months later after this uh, Hajj, he passed away. Uh, were there any indications that his passing away was near? Was there any signs given to him? Well, when you look back, then uh, there, there are many signs, and some were obvious, uh, others were a bit subtle. As far as the obvious ones are concerned, there were verses in the Holy Quran that would read, for instance, uh, there is one in chapter 39, verse 31, surely you will die, and they too will die. And the Holy Quran is clear that uh, someday death will be visited upon the Holy Prophet, and he wasn't immortal, for instance, uh, in uh, one chapter, Surah Anbiya, verse 34, uh, we read, and we have not granted immortality to any human before you. So if you die, will they live forever? Every soul shall taste of death, and we test you with evil and with good by way of a trial. So this is 2135, 6. Mm. And then there was the verse revealed after the Battle of Uhud, which was repeated by Hazrat Abu Bakr to effect calm. It is found in uh, chapter 3, verse 145, which says, And Muhammad is but a messenger. Verily, all messengers have passed away before him. If then he dies or is slain, will he turn back on his heels? And he who turns back on his heels shall not harm Allah at all, and Allah will certainly reward the grateful. And it is an important verse, and we'll come to, to that later as well. Um, of the most subtle Quranic verses is the, uh, is the last um, complete surah that was revealed to the Holy Prophet, which translated reads, when the help of Allah comes and the victory, and you see people entering the religion of online troops, then glorify the praises of your Lord and seek his forgiveness, for certainly he is uh, ever accepting of repentance. And now these verses were, are an indication of the Holy Prophet's impending demise. And I seem to remember, although I couldn't confirm this, that it was on hearing these verses that Hazrat Abu Bakr started to weep because he understood the underlying message there that now that uh, success had been attained, that the Holy Prophet's uh, days on this earth were, were numbered. Mm. Um, so... <coughs> Years later, the time of Hazrat uh, um, uh, Umar, um, and we're talking still about this particular chapter of the Holy Quran, and the one talking about uh, people entering uh, the fold of Islam in, in great uh, numbers. Uh, years later, during the time of Hazrat Umar, he introduced Ibn Abbas to a group that gathered regularly to discuss religious matters in depth. And Ibn Abbas was uh, one of them, uh, or Ibn Abbas was introduced uh, to be one of them. Now, he was the cousin of the Holy Prophet, first cousin. Uh, his father and the Holy Prophet's father were brothers. Uh, now, some of the um, members uh, of the group uh, who were a lot older than Ibn Abbas started grumbling about his inclusion because they were older, uh, they felt that they were wiser. Why introduce you know, uh, a young man, you know, a greenhorn? Uh, a sapling uh, uh, to this uh, august uh, company. But Hazrat Umar uh, recognized the potential of the young man, and in order to demonstrate his ability in front of others, he asked for them to comment on this surah, this surah which is talking about uh, people entering uh, the fold of Islam in great numbers. Opinions were offered, and when it, was, when it came to Ibn Abbas, he said that the verses uh, underlying indication also signaled the end of the Holy Prophet's time, and that he should prepare to meet Allah. And this interpretation in, impressed the others, and rightly so, because Ibn Abbas was indeed very perceptive and rose to become a great scholar of Islam, and his acknowledged for his knowledge and critical interpretation of the Holy Quran. So it's a significant chapter. It's a chapter that uh, indicates the uh, impending demise of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. 
And what about the Holy Prophet himself? Did he give any signs that uh, of his imminent? Yes, demand? yes. Again, there were clear indications, more subtle ones. Of the clear ones, uh, there's one lit- uh, related by Moaz bin uh, Jabal. Uh, and he was a native of Medina. Uh, same tribe, the Khazraj, as Abdullah bin Abayi. Abdullah bin Abayi being the notorious hypocrite. But uh, uh, Moaz bin Jab- uh, Jabal was completely opposite to him. Uh, he was extremely loyal to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He was someone that the Holy Prophet also held in very high regard. And because uh, of his intelligence and, and knowledge, the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, said that he will be the one who will lead the scholars in, into paradise. And he was among those five people who the Holy Prophet entrusted to preserve the revelation of the Holy Quran. So he's a very important individual. And he says uh, that when the Holy Prophet appointed him as governor of Yemen during mm-hmm. the last months of his life, he offered, the Holy Prophet offered to walk with him out to the south of Medina uh, so that he could uh, start on his journey. A great honor. Uh, what is more, uh, Moaz was riding on a donkey and the Holy Prophet uh, chose to accompany him on foot and insisted on doing so. Uh, and this shows the simplicity the Holy, of the Holy Prophet. You know, no airs and graces at all, even during this period of his life when he's at the peak of his worldly greatness. But again, he's uh, stuck to his simple ways, simplicity. Anyway, uh, Moaz says that the Holy Prophet talked to him throughout. And one of the things he said is this, and I quote, O Moaz, you're very dear to me, and we may never meet again. Perhaps when you come back, you will only find my masjid and my grave. And Moaz says that on hearing this, he began to weep, because the love that the Holy Prophet had for him was certainly reciprocated, and he loved the Holy Prophet dearly. Hence, he was grief-stricken on learning this, and it transpired that that is exactly what happened, that the Holy Prophet passed away in his absence, and when he did return, he only found uh, the mosque and his grave. Mm. Uh, so this uh, is an intimation of the Holy Prophet believing his time to leave the world was near. He knew. I mean, we've only got three or four minutes yeah. left. What, what are the clues were there of the Holy Prophet soon to be departing from this world? Well, uh, plenty. I mean, he openly said, didn't he, that at the Hajj, that listen to me carefully because I may not be with you the next year. Uh, or, or, or no, I will not be with you again. And he's also reported, said, learn the rights of the Hajj from me. I might not be able to perform Hajj again. And so that was a clear clue as any of what he was thinking. Uh, there, uh, then there is also this report about him visiting the site of Uhud. It's about three miles from Medina. And here he prayed for the fallen and said, uh, wait for me at Hawes. I don't know what that means, Hawes. I will be there. I'll be the one there before you come. Now, I, as I said, I don't know exactly what is meant by the by this phrase, but clearly he's talking about being reunited with the deceased, and as such, an indication he would be with the departed soon. Then a few days later, uh, before his illness, uh, it is related that he woke uh, his servant Abu Muhabia up in the middle of the night and mm. said that Jibrail had come to him and he had ordered him to go and pray for those buried at Baki. Baki is the graveyard in Medina. And the two of them went over and on the way back, he's reported to have said, and this is the quote that is found, O Abu Muabiya, uh, I have been given the keys to the treasures of the world and lasting life in it, then paradise. And it was given a choice between this at the meeting of my Lord and Paradise. So I chose to meet my Lord and Paradise. Another version is that the Holy Prophet asked the servant, do you know that Allah has given me the choice of the keys to this world and everlasting life, then Paradise? 
or to meet uh, Allah right now and be in paradise. And the servant uh, said, choose this world for all, all eternity and then get paradise. To which the Holy Prophet replied, no, I have already chosen. And that was uh, uh, quite an ominous uh, um, okay, what statement. It meant that he was soon to depart from this earth and it was by his choice that this was going to happen. And the new phase of Islam hearkening at the doorstep. Absolutely, yes. And the revolution that he was able to bring about uh, was going to be a lasting one and a very positive one. Mm. Not only for uh, that part of the world, but for uh, the uh, area surrounding it as well. And it was that revolution that many Western commentators and many senior politicians of the time, including Gandhi, have commented about the life of Prophet Muhammad mm. as one of the great statesman, yes. uh, spiritual leader, mm. a military leader, yeah. uh, a man of compassion and mercy, mm. uh, which many recognize. Yeah, because um, of the uh, transformation he was able to bring to a community that was um, so uh, ridden with uh, all kinds of evils. Mm. Uh, so that was a remarkable uh, feat. And this is why uh, Hart, I can't remember his first name, uh, when he was looking at the uh, s uh, various leaders, put him at the top of uh, his list. Indeed. As, a, as the best or the greatest leader. The greatest all. leader of all time. Mm. Indeed. Uh, that was the life of the Holy Prophet. And inshallah, we shall move on to look at other aspects of the movement of Islam. And, and of, of course, coming on to Ahmadiyyat as well. Yeah. Uh, this is the Weekend World Show with Aslan Ahmadi on Voice of Islam. Please join us again after the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to our listeners. This is Asan Amdi on the Weekend World Show with my co host Waleed Ahmed. Uh, Waleed, we're coming on to our next segment of the show, which is Behind the Headlines. Just been called for Donald Trump. The decision taken to join the common market has been the reversed. should call a general election. Weekend World. Questions to the Prime Minister. Behind the Headlines. Well, the Quran says, the Holy Quran, then create not disorder in the earth after it has been set in order and call upon him in fear and hope. Surely the mercy of Allah is nigh unto those who do good. Chapter 7, verse 57. Uh, what is the Telegraph reporting on our energy crisis? Well, um, it is reporting uh, just of oil which uh, vowed to stage non-violent direct action targeting the UK's oil and gas infrastructure if, it demands were, if its demands weren't met by the 14th of March, is calling for the government to make a statement that it will immediately halt all future licensing and consents for the exploration, development and production of fossil fuels in the UK. And the group has followed its threat with a series of events or stunts since then, 
including damage to expensive items of art, uh, throwing paint at important signs and shop windows, hanging themselves aloft from the QE2 bridge, and gluing themselves uh, to roads, stopping traffic. The disruption has certainly made the headlines, but has caused a great deal of inconvenience. Uh, protesters argue that they are doing this for the survival of the planet, and governments are simply not listening otherwise. Yes, uh, let's play a small clip uh, about this. Police have removed Just Stop Oil protesters who glued and handcuffed themselves to the road today in North London's Islington. Activists were faced with verbal abuse and threats from members of the public who lined the streets to watch, but the group argued anger should be directed at the government for allowing new oil and gas licences. So these are the protests that uh, Just Stop Oil Group has uh, been, been carrying out. And uh, the, the aim of the uh, mm. protests are non-violent. Uh, that is their intention. Uh, but uh, some of the uh, key uh, sort of uh, events, as you just mentioned, throwing off uh, uh, the soup on the... Van Gogh's painting. Van Gogh's yes. painting, that's the word mm. I think. Oh, uh, which is going to possibly disrupt or mm. not make people happy, I, no. I would have thought. Uh, certainly some people in the public. Uh, hopefully joining us this morning is... Mr. Oliver Clegg. Mr. Oliver Clegg, yes. Mm. Uh, he's, he's from Just Stop Oil. Uh, I believe he's a spokesman. Good morning, Oliver. Yeah, yeah, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Wallace. It's Oliver, a uh, spokesperson from Just Stop Oil. That's correct. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Oliver, uh, we have all I'm different views, uh, the, the many different views about what's happening to our world and how to resolve the issues. And you are certainly very active in, uh, in, in promoting uh, to bring this to people's attention. Um, but do you have a right to impose your views in a way that destroys property and disrupts? Because your your tar your your aim is to be non-violent, but this is a form of violence, is it not? We're absolutely committed to non-violence, and we we are trained in non-violence, um, and everything that we do is premised around being being peaceful. Um, and so, in that context, I think you can see everything we do as being completely proportional when you compare it to the horrific damage that is being done by the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And and this, uh, damaging, say, the uh, the art of uh, Van Gogh, do two wrongs make a right? Well, I mean, the painting's behind glass. The painting was entirely fine. We're not protected behind glass when the climate crisis brings about 40 degrees of heat in the UK. And that, that's not heat that, that ever happened in the UK before that. When that happened, 1,700 people died they weren't protected mm -hmm. 60 families lost their homes they had no protection in a, in a civilized society and i'm not saying you are uncivilized but i'm just saying in a civilized society discussion debate and and proaction like that is the way to resolve issues uh not to create disorder and things like that and 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 your actions seem to support to have the support of people like yourself and people who are supporting you, but it also has an effect of people getting angry at what you are doing. Yeah, well, discussion and debate is exactly what we're having now and exactly what we want to continue having. But um, the issue is that the government is entirely neglecting its duty of care over its own citizens hmm. and is bringing about this 
this kind of climate breakdown that, as I've already said, is causing 1,700 people to die just in that 40-degree heat, and which is leaving us reliant on fossil fuels, which have brought about this cost-of-living crisis when they could transition to renewable energy, which is nine times cheaper. Indeed. Uh, joining us also, uh, Oliver, is uh, Mr. Khalil Youssef. He's a human rights lawyer and campaigner, and he's also been a candidate for the Lib Dems in the past. Uh, good morning. Asalaamu Alaikum, uh, Khalil. Good morning. Asalaamu Alaikum. Uh, thank you for joining us um, on this very important discussion and debate. Uh, what do you make of what Oliver has had to say about the Just Stop Oil uh, campaigns that they've been carrying out? So first of all, I would just say, I mean, thank you for the introduction. I speak in my personal capacity on this uh, program today. Thank you. And I do understand uh, Oliver's perspective, and I understand the objectives that Oliver and Just Stop Oil want to try and achieve, you know, trying to protect our climate uh, or try and protect our environment from unsustainable increases in temperature is important and trying to find renewable ways of powering and heating our world is also important. But the question is how you go about achieving that. And I think that if you are climbing bridges, destroying uh, the framework of artwork that has been in existence for a very long period of time and is a an asset for all of the public, if you are preventing emergency services from reaching people, then that is not, in my view, the mechanism to be able to effect change. And that really is what it is that we want to achieve. We want to affect change. And in order to affect change, you have to garner the support of the people who you want to affect that change. So if you want people to start to utilize more renewable energy, to change their behavior, to start using buses which are at their lowest level of usage now in history uh, for all sorts of reasons actually then you have to have the public support and by turning by making the public your opponents by causing them harm you're not really focusing on the people who really are causing the damage and so if all of the if protesters are to utilize their energies in a manner in which they target those people who are able to make changes. I mean, if the thousands of people who are protesting with Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion and others were to all engage with the media, were to all engage with their politicians, were to start their own political parties and to engage in the democratic process, they'd be much more uh, able to affect change than this short-term approach, which has not been successful for any other organization. But you could argue that the world leaders, they, they, you know, they're, they're, they're basically talking shops. They don't do anything. They, they set targets. They don't do anything. And until people like Oliver's group, Just to Stop Oil, carry out these sort of campaigns, no one is listening. And they just carry on making money for themselves and for their for their. Uh, for the followers, etc. Um, so th- it is necessary for such uh, organisations to make a mark. Well, well it's, it's not true, actually. I mean, I think you know the you'll see there's a huge change in behaviour, huge rise in the use of electric cars. There's a discussion and conversation at a political level about climate change and how to address that. And actually, there have been changes. I mean, look in 
after uh, COP in 2009, rich countries have promised to mobilize about $100 billion of climate finance each year for poor countries by 2020. Now, admittedly, by 2019, that flow had only reached about $80 billion a year, according to the OECD. But the pandemic had intervened, and it was an item of discussion at COP26 as to why we hadn't reached that. But look, it, $80 billion a year was put towards poor countries. In Glasgow, for example, they've been testing new models for financing decarbonisation in poor countries. And the Britain, EU, France, Germany have all agreed to mobilise a pot of $8.5 billion over the next three to five years for South Africa. So, you know, their work has been done. And actually, it isn't individuals' fault that things can't move forward. You can't put up a wind turbine in your garden. You can't put up solar panels easily you, because you have planning restrictions. There are all sorts of reasons why individuals aren't able to make individual changes, uh, primarily due to cost. Mm. So focusing on the government, focusing yeah. on making sure that the funding is there is actually the way to do it rather than penalizing individuals who really have no power to be able to make those changes. Okay. Uh, Oliver, what do you say to what uh, uh, Khalil is saying? He's saying basically that the work yeah. is being done and there, there's no need for you to, to worry and there's no need for you to be protesting. Well, I mean, I, I agree with what you just said and I think he completely misses the point of what we're trying to do. I mean, firstly, this isn't just about like the, the environment or the climate in some broad sense. This is about our lives. I'm, I'm a 19-year-old here. I'm a student. Um, think about the heat that we've had in the last year. Think about that 40 degrees. Imagine what it's going to be like next year. We've already lost 50% of our potato crop, a third of our wheat yield. Um, imagine what it's going to be like then for the rest of my life. I mean, frankly, it's terrifying. And we need that action. And I'm glad that you acknowledge we need that action. Now, you've said about, like, individual um, choices that we can make. Um, and I completely agree with you. Individuals cannot, they, we can't solve everything. Because the government has committed itself to 100 new fossil fuel projects. It doesn't matter what the rest of us do if the government is going to build a hundred new fossil fuel projects. I mean, that's just a death sentence to my generation. And there's no way of managing to get around this through independent individual change if the government keeps going with that. And that's why we need to oppose that specific government policy. And that's what we're doing. Uh, Oliver, Oliver I, can, I, can, I can discern or detect the, the strengths of your views uh, on this. Very powerful. But you must also recognize that there are other issues that people have strong views upon, uh, that, are, that people feel that their views are being neglected or are not being attended to as well as they should be. What kind of example are you setting for them? Are you saying to them as well to go along the same kind of methods or to embark on the same kind of methods that you are? that is uh, causing disruption to the to, to others, destroying property. If you're doing that, then you are asking for anarchy in our society, aren't you? That's all. I mean, you don't have to pick an issue. You can care about sorting the climate crisis whilst also dealing with all the other issues we face. And now you're saying about like the tactics um, and the, the potential for anarchy. I mean, of course, that's not going to happen because, as I say, we are committed non-violence we're committed to being peaceful um, and the particularity with the climate crisis is that we can't wait it's not like other issues it is constantly getting worse mm. the longer that we leave it 
the harder it, it becomes to tackle. And already we've had Sir David King, who was the chief scientific advisor to multiple UK governments. He said that we have three to four years, and he said that a year ago. So that's, that's two to three years now. Two to three years now to determine the future of humanity, and that's in his own words. That's, that's not time to wait around. That's not time to sign petitions. That's time where we need to take direct action, civil resistance. But one of the things Khalil was saying there, that we're not ready for stopping the oil. We need time. We need to process and put in place an alternative. Which we, have, we, no- we have eight years of fossil fuel reserves. But, but we are nowhere near uh, ready to stop using oil and go on to electronic because the world's not ready. And, and the Western nations, since the um, uh, Industrial Revolution, has polluted the world all over the place. And now they're telling the poor countries to refrain from it. Isn't that hypocrisy? Yeah, well, we're just arguing about the UK. We're not, we're not making a policy about other countries. What we're saying is that the UK needs to do its duty as somewhere that started this industrial revolution. It needs to now start actually making a green revolution. And to do that, it cannot continue with these 100 new fossil fuel projects. I mean, that is what hypocrisy would be. If they say on the one hand, that the government is, is caring about the climate, and then on the flip side of that, licenses 100, that... That would be hypocritical. Halil, uh, response to that? Look, I mean, you have to keep things in context. I mean, first of all, one country making changes is not going to address the climate crisis because the climate crisis is not divided by borders. It affects our entire planet. The second thing to think about is that, you know, we are, even, even today, we are in the midst of a crisis in which people don't have enough food to eat, People are homeless, people are facing very real challenges to their health, and the idea that we can divert all of the money away from food and health and other resources that people need in order to try and stop the use of what are ultimately natural products. You know, oil and coal are all products which are generated by the earth, by the environment itself and say that, well, we should now no longer use any oil-based product. It's simply not sustainable. You need time to build nuclear power plants. You need time to be able to have a green revolution. You need an industry to be able to support the development of solar panels and wind turbines and marine and all other natural resources. And the idea that throwing a tin of tomato soup over a Van Gogh painting is suddenly going to stop people from being affected by 40-degree is a misargument actually because one has nothing to do with the other. Those people who do unfortunately and very sadly lose their lives in cold weather and hot weather and for other reasons are not going to be saved by throwing tomato sauce or tomato soup over a Van Gogh painting or climbing over the QE2 bridge or stopping somebody from getting their partner to a hospital because they have glued their hands to the road or preventing ambulances or the fire service or the police service from operating their service. The way that things will be changed is by engaging positively with governments globally and by making sure that the money goes into changes to transport. So for example, funding of local authorities so that they can have more bus services and we don't need to use our cars as much investment in being able to cycle, reform of planning laws so that people can then have renewable energy in their homes without having to go through lengthy consultation processes uh, which prevent them from having renewable 
energy generation sources in their homes. There are lots of other practical sure. things that can be done Indeed. which are not being done. No, no, uh, you make some good, some very valid points there, Khalil. Yeah. Uh, look, um, just one last word to you, Oliver, on this one. Uh, yeah, in response yeah. to what Khalil says, that, uh, that you know, throwing soups is not going to change the climate, is it? And and you need to have a bit more uh, sophistication. Bit, yeah, sophistication in, into what you want to achieve in bringing attention to the our politicians. Yeah, well, I must clarify. I mean, first we let ambulances um, through. We have a blue light policy. Um, but secondly, I mean, you were saying that we are. Um, it's kind of unrealistic. I mean, the reality is though that we have eight years of fossil fuel reserves, more than enough to make this transition. Um, on top of that, I mean, you mentioned people who are people who are starving, people who are homeless. Um, people are freezing over the winter. But of course, if we had insulated homes, people wouldn't be freezing over the winter. Um, if we were using renewable energy, which is nine times cheaper, people's energy bills could be, be, be 400 quid instead of 3,500 quid. Um, the solutions are all there, and the solutions are all in moving away from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are killing us. Um, and I, I applaud like what you're doing in um, like local councils and, um, and you said you were running for the Lib Dem um, councillor. But you can't achieve everything by doing that. On the flip side, we need to have people engaging in local government, but we also need people to be doing this kind of disruptive process because there is no way, no way that we are going to be able to reach even, even frankly, a habitable world if we allow these 100 new fossil fuel products, um, fossil fuel projects to be built. Um, and then you're saying, oh, the, the link um, isn't very there or that it's kind, of, it's kind of futile. But I just, as a 19-year-old, I can't sit here saying it's futile. I can't give up. This is my life that's at stake. I can't sit here saying, oh, well, it's not achieved much. I'm just going to, like, go home now and do nothing. I don't think that's. I don't think that's. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think that's been. I don't think that's been suggested. But yes, Khalil, say coming. I, I was going to say. Look, I mean, I, I appreciate Oliver where you're coming from, and you know, you want to make a world that is going to be much better for you and for you know your children. I get that. But look, if your uncle is eating meat in your uncle's house, you're not going to change his behaviour by going into your own house and throwing a tin of soup over a painting in your mum's home. Your mum and your home has got nothing to do with what your uncle does. The way to change your uncle's behaviour is to speak to your uncle. And that's what you need to be doing. There's no point in penalising the public who are not the ones that make those decisions. You have to speak to the people who actually make those decisions. And that is the way in which you engage. And that is the way in which you change opinion. Gen that's the way in which you yeah. change policy. Gent gentlemen, this uh, discussion could carry on. Uh, but interesting debate. And uh, we all, it's clear that all of us care for our uh, planet, for our universe. And our aims are the same. Uh, but uh, the way we go about it are different. And uh, let's hope that... Uh, sense prevails and uh, the best is done for our planet. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this discussion and sharing your good views. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's okay. Uh, let's take another perspective on this, Walid. Mm. Uh, we are Muslims. Uh, one of the things uh, the word Islam means peace. It means peace with yourselves, peace with your people you live in, peace with the creation that God has created. And for peace to prevail, uh, for all of those, 
this aspect of conservation also is part of that faith of Islam. We have Imam Mansur uh, Clark with us uh, to give us a little perspective from a faith perspective on this issue. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Imam Mansur. Waalaikumsalam. Thank you very much for having me. No, no, no. Sorry to keep you waiting, but we were having a, a, a good political discussion with both uh, Oliver and, and Khalil, and I hope you were listening into some of that. Uh, well, as far as faith is concerned, as far as Islam in particular is concerned, what is our viewpoint, or what is your understanding of the viewpoint of Islam about protesting in the way Oliver feels that he needs to do because he is so concerned? I think there is a, a very clear distinction line to be made between uh, the ways in which people protest. Protesting is something which is completely human, completely natural. It's the ability and the right afforded to us, living in democracies such as we are in, to be able to express our opinions when they go against the grain, as it were. And I think someone like Oliver is making a really valid point about the fact that we are leading humanity down into um, a situation where I think it would be irreversible and he quite rightly has these very strong emotions about what he feels is right and what he feels is wrong. Now, in terms of what faith teaches us, uh, and of course I, I speak on my, uh, on my own behalf here, mm. is that faith teaches us that we're there to look after the rights of God and after the rights of God's creation. And if in our actions, in our so-called protests, we are uh, usurping the rights of God's creation, that very, very clearly goes against that fundamental and basic principle. Now, protesting in one way of expressing one's opinion is absolutely fine. We live in a democracy where we have the freedom of speech and the freedom of expression. But once our expression takes a physical form in the sense that we are then usurping the very rights of the very same people that we are purporting to support, I mean, it becomes kind of... I wouldn't call it hypocrisy because it's a very harsh word, but I mean, we're literally fighting against ourselves. Because on one side, we're saying, look, we want to look after the lives of people living in this world by reducing fossil fuels, etc., etc. And then in doing so, actually, in the way that we express our protest, we are usurping those very same rights from those very same people. So there, there needs to be a much more adult and mature way of assessing how we express our protest but the essence of protest itself is absolutely fine in terms of the, the type of protest is permitted in islam then because you mentioned that yes you have a right of certainty but what is the format in which islam permits you to do that and, and in terms of how do you uh, behave in uh, with authorities that you have put in place so i mean the idea of authority is an interesting one because Authority quite literally means, you know, those people that are put in charge of you. Mm. Uh, if you refuse to accept authority then, I mean, by definition, they're no longer the authorities. So if we are accepting that the, say, the police are in authority amongst us, the traffic police looking after the motorways and the road systems to ensure the free-flowing of traffic and the, the ease of movement of key vehicles from place to place. Because, of course, I mean, I, I mean, I appreciate Oliver saying that there's a blue light policy, but, I mean, any one of us will know that Anywhere, say, for example, on the M25, if, if one car decides to slow down, that kind of snake approach where right three miles down the road, everything is blocked up. Even if you have a blue light policy at one junction, it doesn't necessarily mean that ambulances and police forces and fire brigades are being able to get to their destination at the, re the required time. So protests which are allowed are those protests which do not harm the people and society. There's no civil unrest. There's no disruption to the systems and the flows of society. 
what you are allowed to do is express yourself in a way which is most befitting for a pragmatic constituent within society, which means that you're not breaking the flows and the processes within society to the detriment of people around you, but you are able to get your point across. And I think your previous caller, um, Mr. Yusuf, was very quite right in what he said, in the sense that you're supposed to be engaging the, the authorities and those people who are actually in a position to be able to affect what's going on. I mean, what, what's happened? We, we've seen the introduction of, uh, of uh, electric cars, and there's more of a, a buzz around it. But what's happening is, with people doing these kind of stunts of throwing soup on Van Gogh painting, by the way, I think that's quite ironic that they decided to target a plant. But anyway, um, <laughs> in addition to that, though, I think that what they're doing is actually hamstringing the same argument that they're supposed to be pushing. And what they're doing is they're saying to people, look, we have no logic behind our actions. We are upsetting people. We're destroying things within our world which we should be holding sacred. Therefore, support our argument. I think anyone would be absolutely ridiculous if they didn't support the idea that we should be going towards renewable energies and to help the world as it is. Because we are going towards an irreversible situation. But the way in which we do that is crucial. Otherwise, what we'll end up doing is alienating the very same target audience and demographics that we're actually trying to appease and bring towards us. So, I mean, to answer your question, mm. protesting of expressions of one's views are brilliant. It's fantastic. We're in a democracy. It's, it's one of the, the cornerstones of what we live in a democracy. And Islam allows that as well, to express yourself in a way that is leading to progress and betterment within society. However, if you cannot prove your points with logic, if you can't prove your points with the backup of fact and summary, then you are at a crossroads where you either accept what is going on around you, which I believe in this sense would not be the right way, or you directly engage with those people who are responsible and have the responsibility of making those decisions. Otherwise, civil unrest won't get anywhere. It will just cause more and more problems, quite simply because the people in charge evidently are not putting the right amount of emphasis on these important issues. Okay. Uh, Willie, you've got a question for Mansour? Uh, no, um, yes, I, I think you may have answered it, but I mean, because at the top of this uh, this particular item, we uh, quoted a verse of the Holy Quran which uh, admonished believers uh, about creating disorder in the earth, but we also have a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, about standing up against evil. I mean, there's one particular saying where he said that if you find something that uh, that is evil, you should remove it with your hand. If you can't do that, you should remove it with your tongue. If you can't do that, then uh, uh, condemn it in your heart. Uh, how do you reconcile these two positions? I mean, it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful uh, hadith saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing of God be upon him that you've mentioned. Because for me, it tells us exactly the solution to the problem. If you are in a position, it does not say that if you are in a position to only think bad about something, get your hand out and start doing something with it physically. Or if you're in a position to speak about it, you should do something physically. Rather, to me, what this hadith talks about is if you find yourself to be in a position where you can physically change things that are going on, i.e. you're in a position of responsibility and authority, where you're able to enact change yourself, then do so. If you're in a position where you're only able to discuss and influence the actions of other people with your words and your argumentation, then do so. Or if anything else, if you're unable to even act or influence with your opinion, then at least in your heart create a change within society in terms of how you're thinking so that those people that are in a position to influence with their words or actions can do so. 
So I think it's a very it's a very important step down process. It doesn't say if you're in a position where you can only think bad about something, you should enact change, which is exactly what's going on with these kind of protests. Those people that have no authority, no kind of wider picture understanding as to how this will impact society, because I mean, it's, uh, gluing yourself to a motorway, stopping uh, important ambulances and fire brigades and police officers trying to get to where they're going to save, directly save human lives. If you even uh, hinder or stop one of those things happening, how can you live with yourself? Saying that we've, we, fair enough, you might have reduced carbon emissions by 100 kilograms, but you've lost someone their life. So how do you reconcile fossil fuels with the potential to lose human life later on there with are, the direct loss of human life today? Their argument could be that we are saving millions of lives with our protests and bringing people's attention towards the damage that is being created, uh, not just the amazing. one life. Which would be absolutely amazing if there was tangible proof that that had a direct consequence as a result of them throwing, as was previously mentioned, tomato soup on Van Gogh sunflowers. If we can actually have tangible proof that one action directly led to the actions and the reaction that saved human lives, then brilliant. Unfortunately, or indeed fortunately, many would argue, that is completely and utterly not the case. What we can say, however, is that that ambulance that was stopped taking, say, a pregnant woman to hospital or saving a, a, a man that's bleeding out, when they didn't get to hospital, we can very clearly prove that that led to the loss of life. Now, the point that I'm trying to make is it's foolish for people, especially of a younger generation, I would consider myself a, a bridge between the two in my 30s, it would be foolish for people of a younger generation to believe that nobody else cares about the environment. I have three children, I care very much about the environment. But what I do also care about is the functioning of our society. The way that we achieve our aims is not by overnight setting fire to the Houses of Parliament saying, look, we've set fire to the Houses of Parliament, now everyone will know that climate change is a big issue. Everyone knows that climate change is a big issue. But doing issues like this and stunts like this actually furthers to remove public backing and public opinion. What we need to be doing is making ourselves heard, explaining that this is a huge issue which we need to focus on, we need to address, and yes, perhaps uh, politicians and governments are not doing the required maintenance and work they should be doing, but the way that we gather public opinion is not by attacking the very same public institutions that people hold dear. Mm. I mean, what's practically happened by throwing soup on a painting? It I think that that that, 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 soup, that soup incident is probably a way of bringing the attention to them. Not that that throwing of the soup will actually make the difference, but it's bringing attention to the leaders and the politicians who they feel are not listening. And it's how to get to our, our leaders to listen to us. That is the question. And I'm sure that people will debate on uh, how that can be best done. You've presented our Islamic points of view wonderfully. Thank you very much for sharing those views, Mansoor. And inshallah, we shall have you back on our show soon once again. I look forward to it, man. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. As-salamu alaykum wa Right, Walid, we're mm. coming on to our last, well, last but one segment of the show, which is Community News. Weekend World. Community News. Right, Walid, mm. uh, what have we got in store? Well, um, there is a verse of the Holy Quran, uh, which translates as, Help one another in acts of piety and righteousness, and do not assist each other in acts of sinfulness and transgression. 
and be aware of Allah verily Allah is severe in punishment. This is from chapter 5 verse 3 and <coughs> this particular item is about uh, um, uh, the assistance given by the uh, uh, community to uh, the repairs of a church and uh, uh, a, a mosque is aiming to raise thousands of pounds and put smiles on faces by helping to save a village church. This was the opening line of a report on the BBC website. It related to how Muslims who frequent the Mubarak Mosque in Tilford extended their hand in helping their neighbours at the All Saints Church. The church has been uh, <coughs> deemed unsafe uh, or was deemed unsafe when pathway ceiling collapsed last year and it needed uh, something like £110,000 for restoration work, uh, a charity hosted by the Ahmadi Muslim community, uh, a charity run hosted by the Ahmadi Muslim uh, community's youth organization, the Kulam and Amdiya, earlier this month helped raise funds for the uh, restoration. And here to talk uh, to us about it are uh, Reverend Neil Fairlamp and Imam Sabah Amdi. Right, good morning, and good morning. Uh, peace good morning. be upon you, Reverend Neil. And, 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 and to you too, thank you, lovely to talk with you. No, no, the pleasure is all ours. Uh, always great to hear people of faith on our show. Uh, Reverend, what were your first thoughts uh, when you first found out about the cost of the restoration? What brought about the damage to the ceiling as well? Well, it's, you're honest to the day, because it happened on the 31st of October oh. <laughs> uh, last, last year. Mm. And it happened at ten past nine in the morning. I think uh, I think uh, the Almighty was looking after after us because uh, the service uh, w- was due to start at ten o'clock, and the clocks had gone back an hour oh. that Saturday night. So what what happened at ten past nine in the morning would have happened at ten past ten and with the church would have been full. with one hundred and fifty people in the church mm. because we are dedicated to all saints. All Saints Day, God, which is at that God, time. God does work in mysterious ways, as, we, <laughs> as, 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 as the Bible but often at the, states. At the time, <laughs> I, I, I saw it uh, happen, and the only other person was the organist in the church at the same time. And it was a great section of plaster, laugh, traditional lime plaster, the way um, British houses in the Regency England used to be built with a sort of lime plaster ceiling uh, held together in wooden frames. And that plaster had been up there since 1867, so it's about 150 years old. Um, and maybe some damp had got into parts of it, but a great chunk of it fell. And if it had, if, if there had been a congregation, it doesn't bear thinking about really, uh, what would have happened? So that happened a year, a year ago, 31st of October, and of course the church has been closed um, until it reopened in August. And very briefly, we were, we were faced with a repair bill of about 110, a replacement bill. We thought, well, first of all, repair. Mm-hmm. Then it was realized that the uh, the damage was not only in the area that fell, there was dampness um, in our other areas of the ceiling. And the whole ceiling had to be replaced. Wow. And the cost of this, well, to replace like with like, in other words, to replace the lime plaster with the wooden frames, mm. would have been very, very expensive. Right. What the alternative was to use plasterboard, uh, plasterboard insulated on the on the other side to conserve the heat. 
but there was a conservation issue. This wasn't a material, you know, used in 1867. I was going to say, it's like sticking plaster on well, it. So replacing like with like, so there mm. were conservation issues, historical issues. The bottom line was, though, that replacing with plasterboard uh, was going to cost 110000 Right. And then the second uh, disaster, um, in the plaster fall was a disaster. The second disaster was that the insurers, uh, who insure all the churches of the Church of England, told us we don't pay for wear and tear. Oh, dear. You know, I had a, mm. one of my churches in Wales, we had an electrical fire, and uh, that that's obviously um, a disaster that insurance covers. Mm-hmm. But wear and tear, in other words, plaster 150 years old is going to fall sometime. Indeed. So not a, not a penny, mm. not a penny. So, so you had to raise this money by yourself and uh, yes, with a small... Yes, as, com- as, 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 as a parish, yes. The congregation is not large. No. It is a, it is a wealthy area, of course, this part of Surrey. Mm-hmm. But um, on the whole, quite a few of the wealthy, wealthy people are not so much in church. No, um, no. Indeed. So we had to reach out to people of goodwill okay. who valued a church to be there. And we were amazed. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not totally amazed, because I, I have been to um, to Islamabad quite a few times since I've been here. Uh, I was, But still, we were very surprised as a community at the immediate offer of response and help from... Uh, the Ahmadiyyas in, in Tilford. Okay. Uh, we have uh, Sabah Sabah Ahmadi with us uh, from the Andhra Muslim Youth Association. Yes. Uh, Sabah, Assalamu alaikum. Ibn Sabah, when did you first learn about this, what uh, Reverend Neil has just mentioned to us, and what prompted you to offer a helping hand? Uh, I think we found out um, shortly after the, um, the roof had collapsed um, that they needed help, and then of course, as faith teaches across across the board, really, that it's important to look after your neighbours and, and, and fulfil their rights. And I believe this is also fulfilling the rights of your neighbours and trying to trying to cater and accommodate um, fixing the roof for worshippers to come and, and worship. Um, so we, we joined forces, as we can say, with the church, uh, organised a charity run, and I believe we raised in excess of £90,000, I hope, We've come close to 150,000, um, but from what I was aware of, it's 90,000 plus, which we managed to get together so far. That's an immense amount. And has that come from the Youth Association of the Amdi Muslim Community? <laughs> it has, yes. It was, it was organised by the MKA, um, uh, the Muslim Youth Organisation, um, mm. under the banner of Mercy for Mankind. Yes. Um, so it was a run which people could take part in, and people donated very generously, um, and now we're here. Um, it's just celebrating that union of two communities coming together mm. and uh, working on, on a project which was really worth working on. Right. Uh, uh, Reverend Neil, um, when you said you weren't surprised that the Muslim community came to support no, no. you, but were you surprised at the, the amount they were able to raise and how quickly? Oh, indeed, absolutely. I mean, I was aware of your projects when I came here I, w- I went to the Jalsa Salana in Alton and I saw how your young men, uh, you know, are involved in, in development projects around the world. Mm. They give of their time and their talent. I have, I, I, I also knew, uh, I've been, I've got in front of me um, uh, the Caliph's book, uh, The Great Western Revival, you know, some of his addresses. Mm-hmm. 
and I've been reading his address in, in Paris in, in 2019 about how you are working, you know, in Africa, hospitals, clinics, schools, clean running water, model villages, um, uh, and how important that work is. But I was very, I was, we were all extremely moved that you wanted to help us here on our, on your home ground in Tilford. And I, I did the, I did the sponsored, I, I didn't do the run, I did the 10 kilometer walk. And I met every single one of the marshals whom your young men, you know, who, I mean, who'd come from, well, Harrow, uh, from, from, um, London, um, to marshal the route and what splendid young men they were. Some of them were also imams in training in Hazelmere at your college, uh, uh, which, which, which I, which I know, which, which I know through, I know through Ijaz Tahir, yes. uh, who's been a great friend for all the time I've been in Tilford. So I know your worldwide help, but you were in this case very local and very focused. And we had had a, 20, a loan of 20,000 pounds to get the work done. But you, your your organization, enabled that money to be found from the sponsored walk. So we have no debt. That is great to hear. Uh, Sabat, uh, one of the verses of the Holy Quran is that uh, permission is given to raise arms had that not been given, yes. then monasteries, churches, synagogues, and temples would surely have been destroyed. Was that the motivation of the Abdi Muslim community to help others, particularly this particular church? Well, we I are think... all, of course, we are. I mean, one, one of the great, huge truths is that we are all children of Abraham. You know, we are, all the, we are all the Abrahamic religions. And, of course, one of those principles is tithing. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, uh, I, I'm sorry to say this on behalf of the church, but it's absolutely true. Your community is far better at, at tithing than we are. We, we, we can only try, Reverend Neil, <laughs> but no, no, we well, appreciate you, well, your, you your kind words. I, I know, I know, you do far more than try. Uh, I, I, I have to say this against my own church, really, apart, with honourable exceptions. <laughs> of course. But, that, of course, but you, I, I know you, you, you are much more disciplined to those demands mm. and of course you are therefore the more richly blessed no, th thank you very much let me bring uh, uh, Imam Sabah into this uh, discussion back in again Sabah uh, I was mentioning about the verse of the Holy Quran to protect churches synagogues is that part of the motivation of the Islamic teachings that motivates the youth uh, in our community I think it can definitely be a part to play in the motivation in striving to help our neighbours and those who go to a house of worship, um, of course, yes. But I think it's also important to instill the love of humanity within people, especially within the youth. We have a motto in the community that you can't reform a nation without reforming its youth first. So once we enable our youngsters to look out for those who might not look like us, might be of different faith, might not do the same things that we do, but we do emphasize the importance of taking care of the things that are important to them. That is a way to instill love for humanity within them. So having the opportunity to help the church, 
I think it was a massive way to instill that love for humanity within the youngsters. Yeah. Reverend Neil, one of the verses of the Holy Quran in chapter 2 says that, uh, O you who believe, the Christians, the Jews, and those who believe in one God, come to a word that is equal to us, that is that we believe in God, the Creator. I think this is a good example of those people coming together, uh, something in common and helping each other. It's something all communities can learn from, can they not? Absolutely. And if I, if I, could, I, I could just add, since we're all men talking, uh, one of the great things about our time in Tilted, speaking really for my wife here, is the links with the women of the Ahmadiyya community in, in meeting together, pray, you know, in, in sharing together. Um, that's been a, a, a tremendous blessing um, uh, that has involved quite a few women on both sides, uh, you know, from both communities. Um, nice. So this, this has been, a, this is, and of course that was also reflected in the sponsored run and the sponsored walk. Um, women took part, women assisted, women helped. Um, this has been a total uh, experience for the community, um, men and women, Christians and Muslims, uh, we've we've planned a discussion, for example, on Mary in the in the Quran and Mary in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I think most Christians would be amazed to learn that Mary is mentioned thirty more times in the in the Quran. Correct. Uh, uh, so we have an enormous amount to what to to learn together and and to share together. Indeed. Uh, chapter 19 of the Holy Quran is actually named after Mary. Uh, the chapter yes. is named uh, Surah Maryam um, in honor of uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, Indeed. Uh, last word to Imam uh, Sabah. Sabah, uh, the work that the youth community are doing in the Amdi Muslim community, this work continues. And uh, how do you find that the youth get motivated by doing this sort of work? I think, you know, when you give back <coughs> to your community and you help people, regardless of the youth or any other community or individual in society, when you know you're helping someone, it gives you a feel-good factor. So as, as selfish as it might sound, it does make you feel good, but in 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 the same breath, it's what faith teaches. Um, so not only have we had the opportunity to help the church here, I was speaking to some of the youth organisers uh, during the week and we were talking about how we're helping um, people due to the economic crisis of how we're helping charities put food packages together I think mm-hmm. there's over 60,000 packages a week we're helping uh, um, people um, in the UK um, with food supplies so I think when it, whether it's helping the church or whether it's helping the vulnerable I think faith across the spectrum teaches the importance of valuing and helping humanity regardless of who they are or where they're from. Thank you very much for sharing those views with us, Imam Sabah. And Reverend Neil, thank you so much for joining us this morning. And and I hope that your church is uh, back to full uh, uh, worship uh, once the roof is fully repaired. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Well, it's a good example of community cohesion there. Um, And uh, something... I don't think the Daily Mail or the Sun would would report in their newspapers, <laughs> uh, but but it needs to be brought to people's attention. Yeah, yeah.
that uh, people of faith, uh, how they can work together yeah. and be united despite having difference of views mm. on, on their theology. On their theologies. Yeah. This, this event was very well covered in the local media, by the way. So mm. that's good, to, great good to, to know. Yeah, great to hear. Right, uh, our last segment of this show. Weekend World. Sports Review. Right, joining us this morning should be Shahid. Assalamu alaikum, Shahid. Right, I think Waleed wants you to kick off with uh, football, with the Premiership, but uh, we've got an important game going on and uh, very closely um, uh, being uh, fought out. Oh, you mean cricket? I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, the subcontinent thinks it's the biggest game going in the world at the moment. And, uh, and even listening to the Sky commentators, they too felt it was the big one of the biggest games going. <laughs> oh, <laughs> indeed. I think, yeah, that has always been the case. I mean, any game between the two subcontinent teams at any sport is like that. And obviously, cricket is the biggest sport in both the countries. And India, for, by far the biggest in terms of cricket world all over the world. So, like you said, and you're going back to the real the logistics of the World Cup in Australia, uh, this game which sold out and uh, right from the start, and people are saying it might be rained off. But uh, it seems to be that the drain has uh, stayed off. Yep. And in Pakistan, after flutter in the morning, I thought they might not even get to 100, you know, 160 somehow, 159. And India, 30 for 40, teetering at the moment. But this is T20 cricket, let's put it that way, even from exactly. here. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and the dangerous colleagues in, in, in is there, Indeed. and uh, he's always a danger to be confronted with, and uh, a couple of big hitters for India to come. Um, Pakistan underachieved in there, although they got two hundred sixty, uh, they could have got a higher score. <laughs> oh, they could have gone even under. Let's put it that way. I mean, <laughs> just to get two people into fifties and yeah. get hundred sixty is very odd. Uh, but the lower order did their bit, and uh, luckily, I think uh, they got to the uh, well, the fighting where the well, fighting chance. Yeah, absolutely, chance. absolutely. And the one, the bowling attack that they have, and they, they would have fancied that. But having lost three wickets or four wickets now, as you said, hmm. at 30 runs or so, it is something that Pakistan, I think, are beyond their belief. Yeah, and looking at the economy rates of the bowlers, is looking uh, quite a tight match at, at the moment. Indeed. indeed. Okay. Can I just ask, Shail, are you surprised uh, that uh, uh, among the teams that you would not uh, expect to do to perform as badly as they have, the West Indies have not done well at all? Well, lost West against Indies Scotland, lost been, against Ireland. Yeah, West Indies have been topsy turvy, and I think uh, normally this uh, qualifying rounds also does make it very tentative in the fact that they have to win two out of the three games in their group to go through. And they come up against a good side on the day on Ireland at that stage. And, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised, to be honest with you. And uh, I'm not a fan of T20, as I've said a number of times in the past. And on the day, anybody can beat anybody. And I, 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 when I saw Holland beating another very good England side in, at Lord some time ago in the World Cup, it just shows where this T20 is. Mm. Uh, but there's a lot to be said. I mean, obviously, a lot of teams have, who have now, not amongst the top teams in the world, do come up against these quite, uh, these kind of teams in the top six, uh, uh, the ICC teams, uh, the test playing nations, and uh, they perform well now. So the, the gap is much less between these teams than it used to be, and I'm not surprised even Holland to be taking part in this as well, as you mentioned, the West Indies. And the West Indies, uh, let's be honest, they are the top performance T20, having won it twice themselves. Yeah. Over to you, Willis, on the Premiership. 
Yes, uh, I was going to ask you about uh, what's happening at Anfield. I mean, uh, at Liverpool, is it just injuries? Uh, they lost yesterday to a very to um, to a team that's at the bottom of the table. Yeah, that was a real, real shock. I think, to be honest, with you, Liverpool have not had these kind of results recently, and to go to Forest, Nottingham Forest, at this moment in time, and uh, who were sitting right at the bottom of the table, I mean, not won a game, I think. Uh, one in fact two I think before but uh, to come up against an, uh, and Liverpool at the moment are not these, uh, not the same side that they used to be in terms of confidence in the players somehow they lack that confidence in themselves and Nottingham Forest just took their chances but nevertheless Liverpool had their chances it's not as if Nottingham Forest were runaway winners uh, but one or two players missing from Liverpool and that seems to be the case I think the squads have to come in and we're playing two games a week uh, and Champions League as well as Premiership, uh, it can get, uh, take its toll, and that's what happened this, yesterday. I feel, but a team like Liverpool, they should have the backup. Let's be honest; with, uh, they should not be losing to a team like Nottingham Forest at this stage in the uh, mm. season. Mm. And the team that's a, that's a surprise in in a different way: um, Arsenal doing very well. Do you think they'll uh, be able to keep up uh, their good uh, their good form throughout the well, season? I think the fact that they are not in the Champions League does help in some cases. Uh, obviously, they're in the Europa League or in the uh, league below that. So they have those games anyway, but nevertheless, it's not so. Tiny. And then one thing about Arsenal is I think Arteta has been, Arteta has been building a side, unlike some of the other teams who like to build, buy in players and then hope for the best and they come off. Uh, for my, from my thinking, I think Arteta is a very astute manager in this respect. He likes to build teams. And that's what he seems to be building. There's no big... Uh, I mean, Gabriel Jesus is obviously the top scorer at the moment, and he's making the team play as well as Saka as well. And that bodes well for them for the rest of the season. But like I said, whether or not they have this going forward all season is something, I mean, at the moment, just one defeat in 11 games, I think, in 10 games. In fact, they've got one our city are one point ahead or below them and with a game in hand mm. so Arsenal I think uh, at the moment are running quite well for their mm. well-oiled team yeah mm. city city performing as well as they can but the surprise was and, and we've seen this before uh, uh, Gerard gets sacked from Everton and then they go and win 3-0 yeah <laughs> that's the thing about these teams that you know, the lower teams anybody not stringing few wins together and then at the bottom of the table the next, next thing you find yourself in a precarious position and Cooper himself was in that position yesterday and much needed win that he got yesterday he will pay me for a few games perhaps as well but everybody those people at the bottom are low we're looking their shoulders and this is what tends to happen at the bottom indeed uh, anyway we will keep a close eye on what's happening with the cricket it's a close game and uh, the premiership some good games on today um, both uh, Tottenham playing, Arsenal playing. Uh, should be good to look at what the tables look like by the end of today. Indeed. Salaam alaikum. Jazakallah for joining us. Do not use the phrase fighter, not a quitter, because yes. Gerard used it on Thursday. <laughs> oh, did he? <laughs> <laughs> and he was out a few hours Oh, dear. <laughs> you did uh, not learn his lesson. So Never mind. <laughs> but thank you. That great, fighters, great anecdote to cl- mm. close with. Uh, thank you to our guests, Reverend Neil, uh, Sabah Ahmed, Mansur Clark, uh, uh, Oliver Clegg, 
uh, Khalil Yusuf and Mansur Clark. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Sabah Ahmedi as well. Willie, thank you very much for co-hosting and also to Habib for our technical support uh, for the show. Without, without whom, this show could not be uh, aired. And thank you particularly to our listeners for listening in and giving us support. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.